So John 15, and then also paragraph number 3 of chapter 16. So this morning we're going to be dealing with the subject of the cause of good works. Um, Where do these good works originate from? Where do these good works, uh, how are they accomplished? And in John 15, of course, this is the passage that is uh, most known as the chapter in which the Lord makes mention of abiding in him. And or he declares himself to be the true vine. And of course, we know as the vine, uh, it is the vine that is required in order to produce the fruit or to produce the growth that is on that vine. He says there in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you, continue in my love." If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So when we we deal with not only this passage this morning, but when we deal with the confession itself, we've been talking about the good works and how good works are accomplished Um, how last week we looked at how these good works are done in obedience to God's commandments and that they are the direct evidence or the fruit of a true and living faith. So even when Jesus was writing, uh, or we were reading these words that Jesus spoke and then as John penned them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord is very clearly defining uh, that in order for this fruit, these good works to be produced, there must be an actual living faith. Um, Not just simply a profession of a living faith, but actually a living faith that is what we could call lively. It is actually producing something. Uh, It would be, uh, the similar uh, illustration would be someone uh, would say this particular tree, uh, this is a uh, an apple tree, for example, and yet there's no, there's no fruit on that tree. It never produces any fruit. Now, it may still identify itself as an apple tree, but if there's no fruit, if there's no evidence, then it does not have an actual living faith. And so Jesus, by declaring himself to be this living faith or being this true vine, and he makes that very definitive statement where he says in uh, verse number five, without me, ye can do nothing. And that's not just in some things in our life. That's not just in our salvation. That's even in producing fruit or evidences or these good works that we have been talking about. If you look over at paragraph three of the confession, uh, notice how the the very first 
footnote or the, the note that mentions the verses is John 15, 4 and 5, but let's read through that paragraph. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is necessary an actual influence of the same Spirit, same Holy Spirit, to work in them to will and to do of His good pleasure. Yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty, unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So there's really a couple of these main ideas I want us to think about. Um, I've already read the paragraph, but I want us to kind of think about these main uh, thoughts this morning. So first of all, these good works are not natural but supernatural, all right? And of course, supernatural, we don't mean like uh, alien from another universe or alien from another world, but we mean that it's supernatural, that it's something that can only be accomplished on, by someone else, uh, in someone else. And that very first statement often, it often, sometimes, hopefully not this crowd, but it makes people angry. Only believers can do good works. Now, Remember, we have to define works and good works by what the Scripture says are good works. And the Bible declares that only believers can actually do good works that are accepted by God as good works. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't things that happen in society that that man labels as good works. But good works that are referenced in the Bible are works that only a believer can do. Now, you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt because this can do good works. This doesn't mean that they're doing them themselves, but we'll talk about this in a moment, that it's an actual influence of the Holy Spirit that's producing those good works. So John chapter 15, verses 4 through 5, made mention of what uh, Jesus means here. He says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except that abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. It's a very picturesque picture here. He said, there is no fruit produced if it's not attached to that vine. There's no evidence, there's no, there's no fruit being produced in a life of a believer if it's not attached to the vine because the life is in the vine. The life is not in the fruit itself, it's in the vine. So Jesus declares himself to be the vine. And as the vine, the, the fruit is produced. Now, a lot of people struggle with this their whole Christian life about what does this mean to abide in him and how do I abide in him and how, how do I keep myself stayed upon him and stayed in him as if again that he is relying upon our grip on him when it's the other way around. It is he who has his grip on us. Now, Jesus is more talking about not this actual act of abiding, but what he is talking about is if there is a true living faith here, then this is a living faith that is defined by a union with him. And to be in Christ, to be unified with Christ, means that it is always going to produce fruit. That's why Jesus goes down the line and he talks about producing fruit, much fruit, more fruit. He continues to go, go down. Now, a lot of times what people have falsely done is saying, well, if I, want to be the, I want to be the high fruit producer. So I'm going to produce more good works and I'm going to do as many good works as I can because I want to be, I want to be the, the, the high fruit. The reality is, is this is the work that God is doing through us. So the glory of God is always the aim. Now, again, I'm using these words, our aim and doing good works, but also remembering that these things can't be done in and of ourselves. They have to be done through the actual influence of the Spirit. 
So where does the ability come from? The ability to do good works comes from the graces in which we've received. In other words, we are given uh, the graces that are needed to do these good works. The reference up there is 2 Corinthians 3, and this is just one of the references we'll go to this morning, uh, verses 1 through 5. Um, the Apostle Paul here, of course, uh, writing about the, the dearness of the people in which he ministered to. And he uses uh, very compassionate language. Uh, he says here in, in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians 2, he says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. So Paul certainly makes reference to the sufficiency of God. And if Paul is granting everything that they do, he is giving glory to God that he received the grace, he received the ability, he received the, even the opportunity um, to, to, to do these works. Paul's not going out on a ledge and saying, I did all these works without God. He said, our sufficiency is in God and is in Christ. So he also talks about, though, you'll notice, he talks about the spirit of Christ. He talks about the spirit of the living God. Um, that is where good works come from, the influence of the spirit. Now, what the paragraph goes on to say is that we don't just sit back and say, all right, the spirit just moves and I don't do anything. The actual paragraph says, yet, that, yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent as if they were bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God. Even the confession writers said, this doesn't mean that we just sit there and just wait for a special movement of the Spirit. We are to be looking for opportunities to do good works. This is the idea that we don't just sit here and, and be not, do nothing, but rather we're to stir up the gift. We're to stir up the grace of God. But we do know that it is a result of the influence of the Spirit. And that's the third point we'll highlight, is believers must be diligent in stirring up the grace of God. There's a couple passages here we'll look at. There's Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 11 through 12. Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 12. It says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now notice verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. 
Abraham didn't just sit idly by waiting for the Holy Spirit to pick him up and move him. Abraham actually acted in faith. He acted in a living faith when he was commanded to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And you all remember, uh, hopefully, that that particular story, uh, that was not something minor. That was the promised son that Abraham and Sarah had waited for for years and years and years. And now God says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son and I want you to, to sacrifice him. I want you to, to offer him up to me. And so he acted upon the faith that he had. And again, we're off, often looking at good works as always something that we can quantify that maybe man says, now that's a good work. But the good works of God are not always quantified but what, by what man sees. Okay, we, have a, we all have our definition of man's good works. But God says there is a very specific way in which good works are accomplished. And then Hebrews 10, 24. Uh, this is in the appeal that the writer of Hebrews is, he is exhorting other believers to uh, hold fast to their faith. He says in verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And notice we are to provoke one another, consider one another, and by doing those things, ultimately it is unto good works. So again, we are very clearly identifying that this is not just something we sit and wait uh, for some moving of the Spirit and say, well, the Spirit never moved me, so I guess no good works are required. Uh, we are to be diligently stirring up the gift and stirring up the graces of God and to be looking for those things. So when we look at this paragraph, these are the three main things we're going to look at today. Um, so first of all, that the good works of believers are attributed entirely to the working of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, most of these um, are, we've already talked about some of the footnoted points already in the paragraph. So some of these are not uh, ones that are footnoted per se, but they're ones that deal with that particular subject. So what is it that we're actually looking for today? We're actually looking at the reality that the good works that we do are entirely the cause or caused by the effect of the Spirit or the influence of the Spirit upon us. Uh, let's look at that first passage, Romans 8, verse number uh, 13 there. We'll start there and read on. Uh, Romans 8. And this, of course, Paul, as he, as he leads us to this particular thought, he begins by, uh, we're picking up in the middle of him reminding the believers that we are not to live after the flesh. He says in verse 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
Paul is talking about an actual life in the spirit. He's not, he's talking about there's a definitive difference between living in the flesh and living in the spirit. He says, you are to mortify the deeds of the body. Uh, We don't just sit here and say, okay, God, I'm going to wait for you to kill the, the deeds of what my body does. We are to take action and to take steps to kill the flesh, to not provide it away to not provide it something that we are doing. But again, Paul's talking to people who only have the Spirit of God. You cannot expect an unbeliever to mortify the flesh. You can't expect a person outside the body of Christ to even have a desire to kill their sin. But for the believer being led of the Spirit, that's what we entirely attribute the working of the Spirit and the working of Christ. Uh, Remember, Again, John 15, we already read there. The Lord Jesus indicates that the believer's entire dependence on him to do good works and bear fruit so that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It is through the Spirit of God, Paul writes here in Romans 8, that we are made holy. And because the Spirit is there, we are to, because of the influence of the Spirit, mortify or kill the deeds of the flesh. Okay? Number two... We'll come back to Philippians 2 in just a minute. Secondly, the good works of believers do not merely arise from their new nature and new heart. There must be an actual daily influence of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Okay, we often have this idea that, all right, because there's the presence of the Spirit, that automatically now I have a new heart, I'm a new creature, the deeds of the flesh are automatically going to be killed, they're automatically going to be mortified, there's not going to be anything left. That's not... That's not at all uh, what that's meant. There has to be an influence of the Spirit. That is where the power of God is being worked out. Now, that is one of the, the footnoted uh, It's in the statement um, that is in the paragraph, and that they may be enabled thereunto besides the graces they have already received, there is necessary and actual influence of the same Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, the footnote takes us to Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul makes mention of actual obedience. He makes, actual, he makes a statement of um, using the terminology, working out your own salvation. But here's what he says, Philippians 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now notice he goes on and gives specific things to be in obedience to. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that ye may be blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me." Now notice, these are part of the evidences of God working his will and his good pleasure in you. Okay, there are people that would say, it's a greater work for me to serve in a ministry at church 
than to do everything without murmuring. Now that'll hit you right in the heart. Because there are people who serve in every ministry of a church and they're murmurers all day long. They complain about everything. They complain about God. They complain about this and then they show up and, but I serve in the church. I'm doing good works. But notice he says murmurings and disputings. So you can be a person who serves in every ministry of the church, but your life is marked with murmurings and disputings. Uh, We often fail to see, well, isn't that a work of the Spirit, that we should do these things without murmuring and without disputing? So what we attribute our good works to is to God's working in us. Okay, so these good works uh, are not just, they don't just arrive with a new nature and a new heart. It's an actual daily influence of the Spirit. We are also told in Galatians 5.16, you can turn over there. So here's where we start putting these pieces together. We're told in the book of Galatians directly what we are to do. Again, here, here, this puts away that idea that we just sit here and don't do anything. He says in verse 16 of Galatians 5, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So this, this commandment in Galatians suggests that this means we are to live in a continual and constant dependence that's active upon the, dependent on the Spirit guiding and leading. So everything I do, I ought to be dependent upon God. Every, every moment that I live, I'm dependent upon God. It's, it's dependence to the point where Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You can't even live a life without murmuring and disputings without me. There must be this act of the Spirit. Now, what was it that they were talking about in the book of Acts? This is one of those that is, makes specific mention of this as well. It's, I've got up there Acts 2, 4, Acts 4, 8, and Acts 13, 52. We're going to read all three of those. There were many times when the, the church in Acts was commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is not a refilling. This is not a, we've got to pray for the Spirit to come down upon us over and over again. The filled is to be yielded to. It is to be dependent upon the movements of or the influence of the Spirit. Acts 2.4, 
It tells us there that on the day of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Of course, we know that the other tongues were other languages, not some special heavenly secret language. Uh, the, the modern day and what's carried on for years and years about this necessary speaking of a heavenly language is heresy. There's nowhere scripturally that there's a special language that you folks are missing out on. So if you're sitting here worried today saying, I don't have that heavenly language, you haven't missed anything because it doesn't exist. It's a sham. What was happening here is people were able to hear the gospel in their own language. That's all it was. Now, that's a miracle in and of itself. The fact that one man could stand up and everybody could hear his words in their own native tongue is quite a miracle of God. Now, can God in his sovereignty take some man's language and speak to the, holy, speak to the heart of man through the Spirit? I don't know how much God can do. I know God is not hindered by anything, right? So is it possible that God could take a language, a person speaking in English in a Spanish-speaking country and somehow could work in the heart of that man? I don't see why it's totally impossible. But it's not a special language that you just don't have enough faith. That's why you can't speak. I have never nor will ever speak in a heavenly language. I have no desire to. There's no need to. But we do know that what Peter was talking about here is being in a constant yielded to this Holy Spirit. Over in Acts 4, verse 8, kind of the same principle here. When Peter and John are arrested, they're teaching the people. And of course, you know, they're taken into custody. And Peter and John are brought before the scribes and the elders. And they're brought before the high priest. And they ask them a question in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He goes on to give a dissertation about Jesus Christ and who he is, why he came, and that you, you leaders, took him and executed an innocent man. And they respond in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Even the unbeliever looked at them and said, they are speaking in a power and an authority that can only declare they've been with Jesus. That's the influence of the Spirit. Folks, if if we truly believed the influence of the Spirit in our life and that the power of the Spirit is still there, it would change a lot about how we even live our day-to-day lives. Because that influence, these, they, they, could not, they couldn't speak against them. They, they, the man that was with them was healed. They said, we can't speak against that. That man is healed. When the power of the Spirit is at work, you don't have to worry about your laundry list of good works that you did for the day. It, it's not a checkbox. It's not, oh, I got to get my good deed in for today. I'm a Christian. It, it's kind of like if you approach your prayer life that way. If you get to the end of the day and you say, oh, man, I went all day. I missed my prayer. I better go ahead and pray and get this in for today. (laughs) Prayer itself should be a great privilege. And if we're dependent upon the Spirit, I can guarantee you the Spirit is, is moving you and influencing you towards prayer more than five minutes before you close your eyes and go to bed at night. 
There's a constant influence of the Spirit on the believer to enter in and to, to be reminded that you're in His presence. This, this Spirit, again, the charismatic foolishness has completely, has completely made real Bible believers afraid to talk about the Spirit. Because we don't want to be labeled charismatic, and you don't want to be labeled charismatic. There's nothing good coming out of that movement. You don't want to be labeled that. But talking about the Spirit doesn't make you charismatic. The Spirit is the only way you can do anything good. And without the Spirit, all of our works are as filthy rags. And we're going to see that even more clearly in just a minute. So thirdly, the work and the influence of the Spirit in the life of the believer cannot be discerned by the senses. Now this one kind of floors you. Because everything we tend to label as this is what a good work is, many of our good works are not discerned by what we can see, what we can hear, what we can smell, what we can taste. The good works of the Spirit don't operate in the human reason and the human realm. When the Spirit was working in Peter and John, the senses were not able to fully comprehend what was happening. When every man was hearing in his own language, they're not able to comprehend why is this even happening. This is a work of the Spirit. So we're commanded, as we've already read, we're commanded to perform these good works. We're not supposed to wait for an observable influence or prompting of the Spirit before doing a good work. Now, I'm going to say this carefully, but here's a common Christian statement we hear. We hear, the Lord moved me to do this because he made this happen. Like, I know, I know Christians that they pray this way and they say, Lord, if you want me to do something, when I'm driving through this intersection, make the light turn green. And if the light turns green, they said, oh, Lord, that's a sign. That's not the way the Spirit's working. The Spirit's not responding to you saying, okay, now I need to verify that this is the Holy Spirit, so in order to verify it, I'm going to make sure that He does this. It's kind of like putting out that fleece and seeing, okay, if there's dew on the fleece, then I'll believe if there's this. Listen, the, the, you don't sit and just wait for an observable moment where God says, the Spirit now moved me. Right? If, if I observe a possibility of doing something good for the kingdom of God, I'm not saying they're waiting, but I've got to wait until the Holy Spirit tells me to do something. Or people say, the Holy Spirit told me this. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. Now again, those terms, you might be using them properly or you might not be using them properly. I've dealt with people in the last week who think that, they, that the Spirit speaks audibly to them. Okay, that they actually hear the voice of God in their ears, in their regular senses. They actually heard him speak. That's not the way he works. He's working through his word. He's working through the presence of the Spirit within you. There are times you have acted upon the influence of the Holy Spirit and you've done a good work and you didn't know you did a good work because you couldn't take any glory for it. We are, we are so Christian pattern oriented that we want to see something that our senses can verify. That's why churches are all about lists of how many people they've reached and how many people they've saved, how many people have done this, because they want to be able to observe the good that they're doing. 
instead of just simply saying, if we all acted upon the influence of the Holy Spirit, we may never know what good works we've done. But does it matter? It doesn't really matter. There's every once in a while, God gives us the privilege of talking to somebody who tells us, hey, you know what? I was through the many years of listening to preaching and many years of you talking to me about the things of God and showing me scripture, I repented of my sins. I believed on Christ. God gives us those glorious moments to rejoice. But we also are not rejoicing because of what we did. We're rejoicing because of what he did. Not because of our good work that we did, but because of what he's doing. When Paul wrote about having working out our salvation, he was not talking about working good works to earn salvation. He, remember, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God's good pleasure that's working in you. It's an amazing thing to me to think about God actually working in me and through me. Because I don't, I don't feel as if I have, have earned that. Well, I haven't. And neither have you. None of us have earned a right to have any of these things. But we do need to understand this properly and understand that the work and the influence of the Spirit in the life of the believer means it cannot often be directly observed by the senses. So what does that mean for us? That means we need to be diligent and exert ourselves to these good works. However, when we have done good works... We need to acknowledge that the only reason we were able to do something good was because of the power of the Spirit working in us. It had nothing to do with your talent or skill set. If you've noticed, the church has taken on, the, the, the modern church has taken on a new structure. It's structured like a corporation. And if you think this isn't a big deal, you need to pay really close attention to what's happening. Everybody's being strategically placed in the right places in order to do the work instead of relying upon the power of the Spirit to do the work. You pull up a lot of church pages now and I see a corporate structure. I see CEOs. I see instead of pastors and elders, I see people given, given titles like president, vice president, assistant vice president. I'm like, where has this gone wrong? That's not, the, that's not the, the, the form in which God's working. He's working in the forms of these, these non-discernible moments when the Spirit is at work and we don't know how and when, just like what Jesus told Nicodemus. You, all you see is the effect of the Spirit, but you don't know when it's coming, you don't know where it's come from. The idea here is, is to understand that we have to remember that these senses that were, have been given, they are a gift of God, but we're talking about things that are in the spiritual realm. Some of you who struggled all of your life with guilt because you didn't do enough for the church, that's because you were trying to discern all of your good works through the senses. And you were more concerned about what somebody else thought about your level of good works. We're going to talk, talk next week about um, the Catholic Church's belief in having an overabundance of merit, doing so much that you have something to share with people. Imagine that. Imagine being so arrogant to say, I've done so much. I have a superabundance of good works. I can share some of mine with you because I've done so much. You realize that line of thinking of the Catholic Church has gotten into Baptist churches. 
And that's why it has become a competition where churches are all thinking, well, I've done this much, you've done this much. Our church is better than your church because we're involved in 15 ministries. Your little church over there only has one. Because we're only doing things that are trying to, dis- we can discern with the senses. The Spirit is not operating in just that realm. Uh, one of the passages that's mentioned there is Isaiah 64, verses 6 through 8. And, of course, this is, Isaiah is just uh, the pinnacle of uh, especially talking about where, what we really are. Isaiah 64, 6. Now, remember, he's talking about what man is alone, without the Spirit, without God. He's got to remember this. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. There's this concept that not only Isaiah was talking about, but he's also talking about the reality of what we are apart from the work of the Spirit. The cause of these good works, paragraph 3, teaches us that the believer's entire dependence is upon the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit to do good works and bear fruit, and that apart from him, we can do nothing. Good works are attributed to God's good pleasure and working alone. It's having too high of an opinion and too highly valuing your own righteousness that leads to this desire to say, my good works are better than your good works. I used to leave church, churches when I was younger every single week feeling guilty that I don't do enough. It it wouldn't be about what this text was about. It wasn't about what the scripture was about. It was about, I'm not doing enough. And I would watch people every week come forward and repent. They're not doing enough. We're not doing enough good works. You're not doing enough good works that can be discerned by the senses. How many times were you influenced? You don't have to answer this. I was influenced. Influenced by people who went forward and then you felt the pressure. I better go forward because half the church is going forward and I don't want to sit here because if I sit here, they're going to think I don't care. Altars would be full of people and half of them are sitting there saying, I don't really know why I'm here, but I don't want to look bad because half the church went forward. You see, the problem is we should desire good works, but we should desire the good works that God is doing not that man can discern. It's one of the things that used to bother me in Bible colleges and seminary. We had to bring back a report of all the good that you did that day. How do you define that? How do you define what that good work was? I'd rather do the work of the Spirit through me, and I may not know discernibly what happened, but somebody's life was changed because God met them. God never said I had a right to know how good, works, how good my works were. I'm just told to go and proclaim the truth. Now, again, this should not be letting us say, well, I'm just going to sit here then and wait to the Spirit. No, you ought to be trying to find all sorts of ways to act under the influence of the Spirit. But be careful about how you're defining your success. 
Again, remember the church structure? You know why corporations exist? They exist to succeed. <laughs> That's why a corporation starts a corporation. What happens to a corporation doesn't meet its sales goals. It closes. Churches are throwing money at all kinds. Of, they've taken the business model for the church. And they're saying, here's, here's why the church is ineffective. Because it's got to be run so that the world can see the business model. No, from what I see in Scripture, what the business model was, and I'm using that term very loosely, the business model was go and preach Jesus Christ. Just preach Christ. You don't need a business model. You don't need a vision statement. But you do need to preach Christ. That's where the boldness comes from. There, there are people today... There are people today in churches that would rather have the title of president than pastor. They'd rather have the title that goes along. It sounds prestigious. They'd rather have the title of doctor. Because they want you to be impressed that they have a PhD in something. I'm all for education. But I'd much rather be called pastor or elder than called doctor. That's just when it comes to spiritual things. There were a lot of doctors in scripture who didn't know Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean a PhD doesn't, just my opinion. You can take that and throw it away. That's just my opinion. But that's, that's, that's part of the point here. So we have to remember, and this, this kind of hits me in the heart too, we must remember that even the very best of the good works we do on our own, now that's the key, what we do on our own are corrupted with sin. All that we think, say, or do contains the spot and blemish of sin, including our intentions and our motives. So if you set out on your own to do good works, you got to keep in mind that even what you're thinking and your motivation has still has the corruption of sin in it. You say, well, that's pretty depressing. No, it's actually should be very spiritually eye-opening because we have to understand that it's not about what we can actually discern as good. It's about acting and living under the influence of the Spirit. There's two passages, Ecclesiastes of course, the, the book that Solomon penned under the inspiration of the Spirit. Of course, it's the search for the, search for the meaning of life, the search for uh, what's the value of things. And we, I could have pointed out probably five or six other passages that deal kind of with this. But in Ecclesiastes 1, beginning there in verse 12, he said, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Then what? Look at this statement. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to a great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have gone, been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. Hmm. Solomon was the, wis the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he comes to this conclusion, in and of myself, these things all point me back to one thing, the vanity of man. 
(laughs) We don't really believe how vain we really are in our sin. We will justify our own motive and our own intention by saying, I know my own heart. That's not a compliment, folks. Our own heart, apart from that new heart that God gives us, is a heart that is bent towards you and you alone and nobody else. It's bent towards your desires, your wants, and believe it or not, towards our own glory. We do things out of a self-seeking manner if it's not done according to God. Now, man's not going to believe that. They're going to say, that's foolish. I didn't give to that charity because I wanted any glory. That's because we don't understand the depths of what total depravity of man actually means. It has affected the entire man, which means there is not one part of man that's not affected by sin in some way, shape, or form, including our intentions and our motives. Now, does this mean we can never do good works? No, it just means we can't do them on our own. He goes on in in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verse 11, and he says, let's look at verse 10. He says, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, look what, look what his conclusion is. All was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Everything my hands did in my own wisdom and in my own strength was vanity and vexation of spirit. It, it unsettled me. There are so many unsettled believers. And you're vexing yourself because you're trying everything under the sun to try to acquire and do good works that sadly are not even the works of God. They're works for your own glory or for somebody else to approve of you. I only say this because I can remember myself early as a pastor, honestly looking at other people and saying, why aren't you doing better? Why aren't you doing more? And what a prideful thought. What a prideful thought on my part to stand in a position that God had put me and said, listen, uh, that was not me to call them out as to their good works and say, you're not doing enough. Solomon was trying to find the meaning of life. And he comes to a conclusion at the end of the book and he says, fear God and keep his commandments. That would be enough to keep us busy just on itself. I'd encourage you to read through Matthew 23 on your own. We won't cover that this morning just because of the length of it. But there's a lot to what goes along with this today. So we've got to remember these, these truths. Uh, and, and what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 23 was the woe upon the Pharisees. And he gives them all the different things about how the Pharisees bind heavy burdens on people. And they were grievous burdens. They were putting a lot of weight on them to do And yet we know the Pharisees, often the weight that they put on other people, they didn't do themselves. So that's the one thing we'll think about there. So here's a a couple questions, and we might have to carry this into next week. But these are are the two main questions we want to think about today. What is the relationship between human or our responsibility and divine enablement? Okay, so how how do we reason that out? How do we say in the area of good works, where's my responsibility and where is the responsibility of God's divine enablement? And then secondly, if God is the producer of good works, why are we as believers commanded to stir up the grace of God in and among one another? 
How do we do that? So that's really the two questions we'll kind of finish with this morning. So you can take either question if you want to try to answer it or just add some insight to it. And we'll kind of discuss it just for a few minutes here. Anybody have any thoughts here on these two questions? Come on, Kristen. Can't discern it. Yeah, can't really necessarily discern it because, yeah, in, in more than just the subject, we have responsibility mm-hmm. that God is sovereign over it. And, um, you know, I think we have to kind of focus on the fact that, well, if, if you bring something to our mind that we need to do, we need to do it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, we focus in on, um, I don't know, focus in on our relationship with Him and pursuing Him, and as we pursue that, He's going to bring more to our mind of what is our human responsibility. Okay, so that's works. so. There's that diligence of pursuing God and pursuing God's God's will in that too. That's good. Other thoughts? Either one of those questions. So both answers so far have been there's kind of a connection between both of them. So it's not just one or the other, right? Any other thoughts? I think that connects to the second question too about how we stir up the grace in and among ourselves and each other. Like I think, I think, and that one of the verses we read in Hebrews is about the, the pro- provoking and encouraging and edifying one another just by being together. We really don't realize the power of the Spirit in a place where believers who are truly seeking God and truly in the Word and truly praising, we really don't understand the power that's in that. Because you're exactly right. I think that, tie, that ties both of what they said together perfectly. It, it's... it's it's that whole picture. It's, it's being in the word. It's, it's not just sitting there waiting for some outward force to move you. It's as you're seeking, as you're searching, God's enabling you, providing these things. But you're also active in what you're doing, right? So it's, you're, you are moving yourself into that direction. That's a great answer. Anything else? Dan? I'm looking at question two um, why are we commanded to stir up the grace of God in and among one another? 
And I, as I look at it, I, I can't help but think or wonder, maybe God designed, maybe God has in mind for local churches to be so much more interconnected than what we are. Uh, amen. <laughs> <laughs> maybe... <laughs> that that if I was given prizes out today, you get the prize. That that is I just that's top notch right there. You, you <laughs> I mean, he, he, he's ordained the methods as well as the means. He's ordained the methods as well as the the end game. The, the uh, you know he. Going to call people unto himself. For some reason, he told us to go go share the message, and and, and similar but related. But um, <laughs> just for the sake of clarity. But I'm just looking and saying, my goodness, <clears throat> maybe he designed this to be much more interdependent on one another than what we either like to admit or what we function at. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that it goes both ways. Sometimes it's it's sometimes it's it's my fault for not reaching out to someone the way I ought to. Sometimes it's my fault for not accepting the reaching out of mm-hmm. someone. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm yeah. Good. Uh, I'm, I'm tough. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's yeah. kind of, but God designed this. You just look at the. Look at the metaphors that are used in the New Testament church mm-hmm. <laughs> and how we're called a body. And my goodness, just if your body doesn't have pain, just wait, it will. And mm-hmm. watch how the rest of your body reacts when one part of your body has pain or mm-hmm. whatever. It, it goes for good times, it goes for bad times, it goes for good works, it goes for everything. God, just, God designed us to be in community. Yeah, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We, it, it is, it's a great answer. We as a church, we don't realize how much we actually need each other. And I agree with Dan. I think there's a level, and I'm just speaking as a man, that there's a level of, of men who have a real hard time with that about thinking that I have to depend on anybody else because I can take care of this myself. I don't, need, I don't need this. We all need each other. We really do. We need each other for a lot of those exact reasons we're talking about, you know, stirring up the grace of God in each other and provoking one another to good. It's, it's going to come up even in the message in the regular service this morning about how it even prevents our hearts from being hardened. That, you know, you, you can, there's, times I've, there's times I've come to church all through my life when, man, my, I was on the precipice of just like, you know what, I've just quit and I'm giving up. And I'm telling you, there's something about being around God's people that are talking about the Word of God, talking about Scripture, then hearing the Word of God preached and hearing the Word of God proclaimed. And suddenly, my heart's not so hard anymore, you know? And what the tendency is, is we go through a painful time, we go through a struggle, and we abandon the one thing we need the most. You know, our church, it should be the thing we think of. I need my church. I really do. And, and so I, I think there's a lot of that second question and all these things together. I think all of these things go together. And these are all, every one of those answers this morning, I think is, those are perfect. That's exactly, I believe, how all this takes place. So, and Dan, you ought, you ought to put that in note form. And 
He could teach a whole lesson on that. That was good. I think that's a great reminder about being interconnected more than what we are. I like the fact, too, that you can interconnect with people that are maybe not always just one local body, but we could have, like our church does, we have people that are here during the school year. We have people that are here at various times during the year, but they're part of the body of Christ. But there's, there's also something about, they would tell you the same thing. There's something about their local church, too. There's something about our local church. You know, I believe in the universal church, absolutely, but there's something really, really special about the local church and the church that God has you in. Right? That's a very, very special thing. So, so let's stop it for there. We could probably talk about this all day. Maybe we should, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll go ahead and stop there. And um, we'll go ahead and take a little time of fellowship here. Um, I did not change the clock, so it's not noon. So take heart. Um, it is 11, but um, so we'll, we'll take a few minutes um, and just kind of fellowship together. Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, thank you for uh, just how you're so clear in your word. Lord, even this morning, the responses that we've gotten even to the questions today. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that your word gives us uh, strength. Your word gives us uh, encouragement, brings conviction through the spirit. And may we all truly desire to live uh, under the influence of the spirit in our day-to-day life. I pray you would continue to strengthen this body, strengthen this church, and make it to what you want it to be. And we pray for even other churches here today that are represented by people that are with us. I pray that you'd strengthen their churches as well, and that we would all go forward uh, for the glory of Christ. Uh, We thank you for this time. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right.